You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this Spotlight podcast on biologics in paediatric rheumatology. I'm your host, Dr. Jenny Lemon. I'm a paediatric registrar with a special interest in rheumatology, and I'm currently working at Alder Hay Children's Hospital. And I have the pleasure of working alongside our very knowledgeable host for today. Um, so over to you, Tavi. I'll let you introduce yourself properly. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, so my name is Tavi Aragon, and I have been working also at the Alder Hay Children's Hospital for the last 20 years, but in particular with the rheumatology team as the as their lead specialist pharmacist for the last for the last eight years or so. And during my time with the rheumatology team, I have to say one of the biggest help that I've been able to to bring to the table is with the explosion of new biologic medicines being available to to our patients to try to help the the team to navigate the complex commission and rules that surround the, the use of these medicines in, in our children population. Yeah, thank you. And we've we discussed when we were discussing the content for this podcast how bi- biologics in pediatrics is such an absolutely huge topic and where to focus it. Um, mm. And I think that one of the areas that trainees sometimes have less exposure to is actually the what goes on behind the scenes um, and the commissioning um, and the sort of non-clinical aspects of biologics. So that's what we're going to focus this podcast um, on today. But I think, Tavi, if you can start off just by explaining what we mean by when we're talking about a biologic in rheumatology. Yeah, so I, I would 100% agree with that, with that, Jenny. Um, I think there are so many textbooks and other uh, sources of information where you can find out how biologics work and sort of the, the basic pharmacology, which is pr- at your level probably all you need to, to know about them. But there's no textbook <laughs> or resource really that is going to help you figure out how you access these medicines and how you can use them and prescribe them uh, f- for your patients. Um, so at the moment, there's three current nomenclature that is being used when it comes to immune, immunomodulatory treatments in pediatric rheumatology or in rheumatology in general is traditional DMART. So DMART star, uh, stands for disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug. And your traditional DMARTs are your methotrexate, your cyclophosphamides, mycophenolate, etc. And then we have our biolo- biological DMARTs, which are what we generally call uh, biologics. And more recently, we also use the term synthetic DMARTs. And synthetic DMARTs are JAK inhibitors, for, uh, JIK inhibitors, for instance, which are not biological drugs, because biological drugs are, most of them, a sort of monoclonal antibody of some kind of, or description. So those are the terms that are being in use now. Okay, so it's obviously the middle ones that we're going to concentrate on today, is so the biological yeah. DMA. <laughs> yes. Yeah, can you tell what what you feel that we need to know about the commissioning side of the biologics? Yeah, so I guess, why do you need to know about this? So I, I, I would say that one of the things, like the couple of times where I've been involved in interviews uh, for a consultant post, for instance, you know, there's a lot of members of the team that get involved in in this. This is a topics that candidates tend to do worse on, in, in my experience. So it would be a really good way of preparing yourself for that kind of stage in your career when you are ready to progress to to those final years of your 
of your ST uh, into consultant level, you need to start really learning these processes and what the terminology means. So I think it's it's it's, it's useful for you guys if you're approaching that level, and I think that's why we're going to focus on this today. So we really need to start with the basics, and the basics is trying to understand the complex way in which the NHS is being funded, or the drugs in the NHS are being funded at the moment. Uh, now, further complicated because the devolved nations have different funding streams and funding mechanisms. So I am mainly going to talk about England today, but the other devolved nations have uh, other routes for of accessing these drugs. So if you uh, practice or live in Scotland, Northern Ireland or Wales, things might be a little bit different to the things we are talking about today. So we have the old CCGs now called Integrated Care Board, so ICV, and they have their own budgets. And then we have uh, NHS England also holds the budget for the drugs that are more expensive. Okay, so drugs, generally speaking, are divided into different kinds when it comes to finance. There's PBR and PBR excluded drugs, PBR. So PBR st stands for payment by results. Your PBR drugs are your run-of-the-mill drugs, drugs that I don't think there's an actual figure on it, but roughly speaking, where a treatment costs less than 2 to 3K a year on a drug, they're usually classed as PBR payment by results. And these drugs will be held in the secondary uh, or tertiary trusts budget, or if you're in primary care, in your integrated care board. And then your PBR excluded drugs are drugs that are more expensive than that. So for these drugs, uh, what tends to happen is that the trusts will use them and then NHS England recharges them. So we present NHS England with a bill. The bill includes like the description drug by drug of how much we have used. And then NHS England then pays us a couple of months later or however many months later. In that sense, things are further complicated when it comes to pediatric practice. So hot of the oven 2022, we have a new manual of specialized prescribing services. So if you're interested uh, in reading, you can just Google the document and find it. It's also available in the NHS England website if you want to kind of delve deep and navigate uh, through that. But this manual basically summarizes for each specialty, both in adults in pediatrics, what part of the management of the patient is commissioned or funded by which part of, of the of healthcare, whether it's primary care, the integrated care boards, or whether it's secondary or in some cases even only tertiary care. Uh, and when it comes to pediatric rheumatology, you go to the manual, you will see that most of the drugs that we manage and we use will have to be commissioned in secondary and tertiary care. Okay, and this tends to happen, generally speaking, for all medical pediatric specialties where the use of drugs like biologics is part now of everyday practice to, to manage our, our patients. So, for example, in gastroenterology, in nephrology, in respiratory, most of those services for children that involve the use of immunomodulatory drugs will be covered by NHS England via secondary care. So complex situation, and I don't know, Jenny, if I've explained myself well or whether you think I need to <laughs> explain something a little bit better. Yeah, 
I think that's that's really useful actually to see how how it's set out for different types of drugs and so obviously our drugs in rheumatology are a bit of a specialist case along with the other subspecialties in paediatrics so what goes on then in terms of deciding that a patient needs one of these specialist drugs what's the what's the process that goes on behind the scenes yeah so we are it depends on on the condition of the child and where, that's where the the process becomes uh, easier or more complicated. So when it comes to JIA, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, we do have a, a very clear NHS England commissioning guidance that sets out very clear steps what biological drugs or biological DMARTs are available for all the different subtypes of JIA and in which steps. So whether you need to have used or tried a traditional DMART first, like methotrexate, or how many months, and then what is your first line uh, biological DMART that you can use, what's the second line biological DMART you can use, third line, etc., and so on. There are certain drugs within the pathway, like rituximab, that are only available for specific types of GIA. So in this case, it's rheumatoid factor positive GIA that is unresponsive to first-line anti-TNF treatment. Unfortunately, that pathway was created a long time ago now, more than, more than eight years ago now. And since then, we have had some advances in, in therapies. So if you look at the NHS England Commissioning Pathway now, you will see that there are some gaps because there are some drugs that we have available now that were not available then. Uh, so examples of those drugs, for instance, are secukinumab. Recently this year became available to treat psoriatic uh, JIA. Um, and we also have tofacitinib, a synthetic uh, DMAR that became also available to treat any type of JIA. Equally, we have subcutaneous versions of some drugs that were not available back then. So subcutaneous tocilizumab, subcutaneous abatacept are also now available to treat all types of GIA. For other uh, rheumatological conditions, it gets a little bit more complicated. The, the more rare the condition is, the less evidence base behind the treatments there would be. Uh, and when I say evidence base, I talk about nice level evidence base and because NHS England functions based on nice recommendations then the commissioning pathways become more rare and it gets a little bit trickier to find drugs to use in these patients even though in some of the countries we know that the the regular practice is to use these biological DMARTs to, to treat them. So for example like I said for JIA uh, most of your biologics are available and commissioned in England. So you've got your anti-TNF drugs like adalimumab and atanercep. Infliximab is also commissioned, even though it's not licensed for the treatment of, of GIA. And then you've got your interleukin inhibitors like tocilizumab. You've got abatacept as well. And we've got tofacitinib, even though it's not a biological drug. And for psoriatic arthritis, we also have secukinumab and rheumatoid factor positive arthritis. We've got herbituximab as well. For periodic fever syndromes, we've got anakinra and canakinumab. Uh, so anakinra is commissioned. Canakinumab needs to be commissioned via the specialist centres in, in London. Uh, and I think Newcastle is also a specialist centre for uh, periodic fever syndromes when it comes to canakinumab. 
for scleroderma or systemic sclerosis, the only biologic that is actually commissioned is abatacept from two years of age. For GIA uveitis, we've got adalimumab. And for lupus, we have got uh, belimumab, for, but only for post-pubescent children. Uh, and for dermatomyositis, the only biological drug that we have available is uh, abatacept as well. So as you can see, like from just the short number of drugs and that large number of indications that I've mentioned, there are a lot of gaps. So examples of gaps would be in dermatomyositis. We've used rituximab for a very, very long time. It's actually not a commissioned drug. For vasculitis, we've used rituximab as well. It's not a commissioned drug. For lupus, we've used rituximab. It's also not a commissioned drug. So what happened is that we started realizing that for these more rare rheumatological conditions, the current commissioning or the commissioning policy at the time was not fit for purpose, really, because we weren't able to access medicines that we had been using for a long time. Yes, they may not have nice level evidence base, but we have strong uh, specialist experience uh, using them to demonstrate their efficacy. So... NHS England then created a document called the Medicines for Children Policy. And the Medicines for Children Policy tried to fix how the commissioning was becoming a barrier to use unfined treatments for, for pediatric patients with autoimmune conditions. This Medicines for Children Policy set up some rules. And then basically those rules said that if there's dosage available in pediatric practice, and that could be from studies or from large experience cohorts. If the child is post-pubescent, okay, so that's a, another in, important condition, and if the disease has got an equivalent disease in the adult world, then those drugs that are used and available in the adult world could then be used and applied in pediatrics as well. But those three criteria need to be met. So there needs to be dosage available, dosage information available, uh, the condition needs to be equivalent and uh, the child needs to be post-pubescent. So some issues with those criteria, as you can probably, you've started thinking, what does post-pubescent mean is the first one. Well, some centers apply the rule that you need to wait until children are 12 years of age to access this policy because that's what post-pubescent means. Now, the endocrine the British Endocrine Society issued a statement to say that uh, puberty st starts in children at different times, and the term post-pubescent can refer to actually someone who is 12 or 13 years old, but it can also be applied to someone who is going through puberty as young as eight or nine years of age. So some centers are applying this post-pubescent rule or criteria in different ways, I have to say. And it's sometimes a little bit of a, um, an unfair rule. So uh, I often speak to my colleague in gastroenterology and their patients are heavily exposed to uh, corticosteroids. And some of their patients have delayed puberty because of that. So in a way, you are kind of double punishing these patients. So they have to be on corticosteroids because there's no other drugs available for them. That's making them hit puberty later, which means they can't access those drugs through the medicines for, for children policy. The other issue that becomes apparent is that the, the disease needs to be equivalent to an adult uh, condition. So for JIA, there's no equivalent adult condition because for years we've been saying that JIA is not RA <laughs> and therefore we cannot apply this medicines commission in policy to our JIA patients 
probably, and in certain parts of England, they have accepted that rheumatoid factor positive JIA would be considered equivalent to adult RA. But other than that uh, specific sub subcategory, then uh, nothing else applies, I'm afraid. So those are kind of what, what we're faced with, and that still means that for rare exclusive pediatric conditions, the commissioning of these high cost drugs becomes really, really difficult. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't realise there was a distinction between the prepubescent um, and the and, and our younger children, really difficult for some of our younger children with rare diseases then. Um, mm. Maybe could you explain a little bit about, because obviously it sounds like the process is a lot a lot easier in terms of getting approval for a drug and starting um, on drugs for the drugs that are commissioned compared to those that aren't. So maybe if you can just explain a little bit about what needs to go on behind the scenes in those two different cases, one that is yeah. commissioned and one that isn't. So if the drug is commissioned, then things are relatively straightforward. Uh, I say relatively because that involves now completing a blue tech document. So the Bluetech platform was introduced in England some years back. There was an initial pilot in the south of England, so they've been using it for longer than us uh, in the north. Eventually, the northwest was piloted this uh, scheme as well, and now it's in full use in the, in the whole of England. And Wales have also started using Bluetech in the last couple of years, so they're catching up with all the creation of the of the forms too. Scotland and Northern Ireland don't use Bluetech and have. Uh, different commissioning pathways for their approved drugs. But uh, it is simple. You need access to the platform. Only consultants or specialist pharmacists or specialist nurses have access to the platform. So as a registrar, you would not have access to this. So when you start a patient on a biological DMARD, you need to go on the platform, you fill a form. It's kind of like maximum five questions, yes or no questions that are telling the commissioners that you are using the drug in a, in a way that you're supposed to use it. So for the right indication, for the right age, when other treatments have been used before uh, and so on. And you get immediate approval. So if you tick the form and everything is as it should be, you'll get an immediate answer saying this treatment is approved and then the treatment can be given. So that's if the drug is commissioned. If the drug is not commissioned, then it gets a little more complicated. And uh, me and uh, another colleague from Sheffield, Claire Nash, have been working with the BSPAR Clinical Affairs Group to try to create a guidance document to help people navigate this situation. You know, what happens if I want to use a, a medication that is not commissioned? And there is a pathway. The, the document is available, I think it was made available in the BSR website. There's many different things that you can do. The first and foremost is that uh, every trust might be slightly different, but you will be required to create a CDEC application, a CDEC or a new drugs and therapeutic application. This application uh, needs to detail what you want to use the drug for. You need to submit the relevant evidence available to you to use the drug. And then it's down to the trust committee to approve the use of this medication or not. If they do approve it, they approve it with the knowledge that the trust will be responsible to carry that budget. And remember, because these are costly drugs, usually we get refunded by NHS England. But in this case, because they are not commissioned drugs, the trust will cover that cost from their own drug budget that does not apply to those drugs. So you're eating up 
any approval of, of such drugs by the, by your trust will be eaten up on the budget from those other drugs. Okay, does that does that make sense? This also creates a situation where some trusts that may be financially in a better situation than other trusts will feel more inclined to approve these treatments and others won't. And it creates a postcode lo lottery situation where you may be in a certain part region in the, of, of England where the drug can be used and you are a same patient with the same condition in a different part of England and you don't have access to the drug. So not really fair and not really what we want. There are other official ways to try to access these medications. Uh, an IFR, individual funding requests, they are extremely difficult to get a drug use approved via this pathway because you need to demonstrate something called exceptionality on your patients. So your patients need to be the only one that could ever need a drug with that indication. So the minute they form part of a cohort, they will never get a drug approved using a, an IFR. And then there's a couple of other ways that you can ask uh, for an interim policy document to be created. And this takes a lot of work. I did some work with one of our consultants, Lisa McCann, to try to get uh, anti-TNF drugs approved to treat CNO. And, you know, we submitted a high quality document to the commissioners and it was still rejected as insufficient evidence. This was six months of work in, in our part. <laughs> If that fails, there's another way that you can try to get this drug approved. Again, it's a very, very lengthy process. There's a small amount of budget that is set out for approving drugs that have not been able to be approved in any, in, in any other way. The commissioners in, in England get together and decide whether on a, on a risk balance, which drug with this money that we have, which drug do we approve of all the ones that have been uh, submitted that will be beneficial for the highest number of patients? And because we we are dealing with pediatrics, <laughs> we never win <laughs> in that situation. So it gets really tricky. And obviously, then you you have the the ultimate last resort, which is try to get the drug by a compassionate use from the from the company. So here, yeah, lots of different routes all sound equally quite complicated. What's for the non-commissioned drugs? What sort of timeframes are we talking about? Like what's the fastest you've ever got a, a drug approved by a non-commissioned uh, route? Because sometimes we have patients in kind of, you know, emergency or urgent situations yeah. that need. So yeah, it's true. Yeah. So in Alderhey, we have a very active uh, C committee who work really hard to try to offer as many treatments that we feel are sufficiently evidenced uh, to our patients. So we do get drugs commissioned this way. This then sometimes poses issues when it comes to transfer to adult care. If the patients that were starting in a treatment that has been commissioned by the trust and only by our, by our trust, and then it's time for the child to move to another hospital or to move to adult services, you know, what happens there? We're creating a barrier to that transition because the adult trust might not be in a position to continue that treatment. So then you need to try to manage that child before they transition to adult services or that young adult, if you can. So those can be on the same week that you want to do, do it. I mean, we sometimes have urgent three chairs meetings and someone could ask for a treatment and two days later the treatment is approved. 
Uh, if you go via the official pathways, my only experience is with uh, the anti-TNF or CNOs, and I, I wouldn't want to give it as, a, as an example, but five years later, we're still trying to get Druk commissioned, and it's still not available in England. A huge, huge variability. Who, apart from obviously the, the lead clinician um, and the pharmacist, who else is involved in the you know, who else needs to be involved from a trust level in terms of thinking about approval for the non-commissioned drugs? Um, so it really comes from from the team that want to the, the drug to be to be approved. So each drug, a trust will have their form to fill in, and as the lead clinician, you pretty much always would need the help of a pharmacist because part of the CDEC form needs to be a, a cost assessment. And as the minimum, you will need the help of the pharmacist to fill in the cost uh, details. Uh, so that's the, the submission. And then the committee gets together. The committee will be formed by different people in different trusts in Alder Hay. We have pharmacy presence, we have senior leadership presence, and we have senior uh, clinician presence as well in those committees and you will be asked sometimes to come to the committee to defend your submission so you talk a bit a little bit about the need the evidence and and so on that's really interesting so it's a committee that would be across cross specialties yeah then for a highly specialized drug yeah, yeah so for instance i've got because I've got quite a lot, of, a lot of experience using biologics. I often, if the if if the submission, the CDEX submission in, involves the use of a biologic, even though it might not be rheumatology, I'm often called into these meetings to advise or have a look at the evidence or suggest things, look at the guidance that has been provided, and so on. Yeah, so I guess having a really good good kind of baseline knowledge of of guidelines and evidence is really important and when you're making these these submissions because you will get asked questions lots of questions then related to the indicate clinical indications and alternatives yeah i mean you do get a grilling <laughs> but not is not as horrible and again i can't speak for other trusts i know how we function in in alder hay we want to know that the treatment will be safe and the treatment and that there's some evidence that the treatment will potentially work for the patient. We also understand the clinical picture, the wider clinical picture. And in severely refractory patients or severely acutely ill patients, we take that into consideration as well. And we also demand or request that the families are explained what the risks, benefits are of using drugs this way. So taking all that into consideration, we try to get the drugs to the patients if we, if we can. We try not to be a barrier, but a facilitator that ensures that there's a level of safety that we're happy with. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. It sounds like a really rigorous, rigorous kind of process that's that's in place, which I guess is important, isn't it, for, for multiple reasons, partly safety and also ensuring equity in a, you know, it, lots of these drugs are being commissioned in tertiary centres where there's so many different subspecialties all needing access to, to specialist drugs. It's important to have that really rigorous process behind it to make sure there is equality. Terms of which I guess I would say, yeah, as a senior registrar, it's the easiest way to dip your toes in, in these waters for the first time. Find out in your rotation whether there is, speak to your pharmacist, I'm sure they'll, they'll have plenty to give you, whether there's a CDEC request that needs doing. Uh, and, you know, you may be taking part in, in journal presentations and so on, but also try to dedicate a little bit of time during your rotation in writing your first drugs and therapeutics or CDEG application because you will get invaluable 
experience from from the, from this just looking at the literature summarizing the results you'll get your critical appraisal you get an understanding by working with the pharmacist of the costing of drugs you present to a senior clinicians in, at, a, at a trust level you're changing practice you know it's all of those things that really when it comes to your consultant post they're going to become so useful for you thank you that's that's all really really useful information i think we've come to the end of end of time now but thank you so much tabby for um explaining all of that to us um for our listeners don't forget to check out the rest of our um, e-learning resources for this month's biologic spotlight on the bsre learning platform thank you very much everybody for listening and thanks again tabby Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app. 